Hi, and welcome to another Room and Room podcast, presented by myself, Dr. Charlotte Westwood, and proudly sponsored by PGG Lights and Seeds. Hey, so if you're a new listener to the Room and Room podcasts, these cover off a wide range of topics all to do with the nutrition of ruminant species, specifically focusing, I guess, more on the nutrition of cattle and sheep than other ruminants such as goats and deer. But we're always open for new topics, so let us know if you want to hear something more about goats and deer, and we will sort that for you. Now, being New Zealand-based, unashamedly, our topics focus very much on the nutrition of ruminants as to do with eating our forages here in New Zealand, largely grasses, brassicas, clovers, chicory, all those sorts of types of feeds. But if you go back over some of our previous episodes, you'll find that we've got other things there as well, including to do with silage, nutrition and other stuff. So if nutrition is your thing, settle on in whatever you might be doing and let's get started on another nutrition topic for you. Right, so this, our latest topic, is going to take a look at the role for dietary iodine in cows, particularly as they head towards mating. So spring calving cows here in New Zealand starting to think about mating, depending on where in New Zealand you are, perhaps in September through to October, and for those further down in Otago and Southland, sometimes not starting mating until early November every year. So that's spring for us down under uh, here in the Southern Hemisphere. Now, as far as looking at different factors, including but not limited to iodine, that influence just how successfully a cow is going to be able to potentially get in calf, all we can say is for a podcast topic, where do we start? There are so many different factors, countless factors in fact, that impact on whether cows are going to start cycling again after calving in a timely manner, whether those cows are actually going to show signs of heat or estrus to accompany ovulation after calving, and then of course whether a cow is actually going to successfully conceive and to hold that conceptus and then ultimately through to an embryo, a fetus and then a live-born calf, and whether a cow can actually Tick the box, if you'd like, on all steps of those processes. So, I don't know, there's probably a hundred or more factors that influence whether a cow's going to get in calf. On that basis, we're going to focus on just one topic in today's podcast, and that's the role for the trace mineral, trace element of iodine, and how that may influence cows getting in calf. But yeah, we must remember that, of course, iodine is just one tiny, tiny aspect of this otherwise more complex topic of improving mating performance in cows based on adjusting aspects around nutrition. And that, of course, is where our number one disclaimer comes in, and that that is iodine is just one tiny cog in this machine of getting cows in calf. And let's be honest, the most important two key factors that determine uh, ultimately our in-calf rates are of course number one, cow body condition score at calving and whether a cow is under target, in other words too thin, or over target, in other words too fat. Really, really important nutritionally and management influenced factor that will influence whether cows get in calf or not. And number two uh, is of course the change or the condition score loss between calving 
and mating as a key factor that influences cows getting in calf. And that's driven predominantly by how much condition they drop and how quickly a cow then starts to regain condition heading towards mating. So compared to these two key factors, condition score at calving and how much condition score is lost between calving and mating, iodine is of course a tiny, tiny, tiny little topic, but we are going to take a bite out of this topic around iodine and we'll come back to more detailed information about negative energy balance or losing condition after calving through to mating and all of those factors if you want some more podcasts to have a deep dive into all of those things to do with mating success because of course uh, they are very very important topics but look we decided just to, to touch on iodine on this occasion for this podcast simply because iodine is one thing that does come up in conversations when we're talking about managing our cows heading into mating and that's because iodine has well it has a number of key influences on cows getting in calf but quite often we're talking about it in context of iodine helping cows to resume cyclicity or to start ovulating after calving and also and this is quite a well-known anecdotal fact in New Zealand is that iodine can sometimes improve the expression of heat or estrus, signs of estrus as cows do start to ovulate heading into mating. That's why we've chosen iodine. Now the context for me personally around this topic of iodine brings back rather a long time ago, rumour has it might be going back to last century indeed, uh, when I first left the Massey University Vet School and had started as a very green, uh, rather ignorant young vet, starting at, uh, back then it was called the Tiamutu Vet Club, with lots of very clever large animal vets, including well-known nutritionist and veterinarian Sue Mackey. Now, as a very green new graduate vet, the vets, particularly Sue, were very, very helpful, giving me rules of thumb to work off to learn very quickly about dairy cow mating and how to improve things from a nutritional point of view. And one of the key rules of thumb that was given to me as a young vet was the importance of supplementing dairy cows with iodine, dietary iodine, and I was quite intrigued because what was this rule of thumb about? Why were the vets, and of course many of my clients who I learnt so much from, swearing that iodine did improve expression of heat or estrus by cows? So that was one of the foundation stones, if you like, laid down back in those days where I was a young vet to do with how trace mineral nutrition may impact the expression of heat by cows. And fast forward many years to today, I still remain intrigued by the question posed, is this effective iodine real on expression of heat by cows? We can all be guilty of perpetuating urban myths and legends unless we stop and take a decent look at the literature, at the scientific papers, and understand is this science to decide if these legendary assumptions, in this case iodine and cow ovulation and onset of estrus, is it actually true? So on this sort of basis of those rules of thumb back in the 1990s, uh, as a green vet out there, are they really true? Well look, let's first take a really brief look at iodine in the diet of our dairy cows and how it might impact our cows. So iodine, well, it's it's a little bit of a complicated topic, but why on earth do cows actually need iodine in their diet? Well, cows, like all of the mammalian species out there, they only need 
iodine for one key aspect of keeping them alive and going, and that is because iodine plays a role as part of the thyroid hormones. There's a number of them, but the key ones we talk about, we'll shorten them up to T3 and T4. Now, T4, vets listening in might remember that T4 is thyroxine. I guess we back the, the bus up another step and we say, what are thyroid hormones, Charlotte, you might ask? Well, the hormones produced, funnily enough, yes, by the thyroid gland. And we'll back the bus up a bit further. Charlotte, what's the thyroid gland? All uh, mammalian species have thyroid glands. And in cows, like other mammals, the thyroid gland sits high up at the top of the neck, perched on the front side of what we call the windpipe, or the true uh, term for that is trachea, up in the top of the neck, sort of under the chin of the cow. Now, what the thyroid gland does is it tunes out lots of amino acids that are bound, tightly bound, to iodine, including this other hormones, T3 and T4. Not going to get too much into the detail without making it an overly long podcast about what T3 and uh, T4 do, but we what we need to do is acknowledge that iodine, the main role when we have dietary iodine, is to allow the thyroid gland to produce these thyroid hormones. So what do thyroid hormones do? Briefly, in a nutshell, number one function is to keep the energy metabolism and the protein synthesis requirements ticking over happily and healthily to keep a cow fit and well. Now, the number two function of thyroid hormones is to support and to really drive the development and function of lots of the cow's uh, body organs inside, so things like the brain, the lungs, the heart, and things like that. So if we have poor growth and development of these organs inside the cow because we don't have enough iodine being available to the thyroid gland. This is why things can start to go wrong, particularly for when we need rapid uh, and successful development of all these different organs inside for a calf before it's born. So if a calf is born to an iodine-deficient cow, We don't have enough appropriate growth and development of all of those organs. And that's why a calf that is born to iodine-deficient cows can sometimes be born a bit slow and sluggish. Just too much of a slow metabolism, not enough get-up-and-go. Worst-case calves born to iodine-deficient cows could be born dead, so um, they're just stillborn. Or if they're alive, they'll be slow and sluggish, slow to get up and have a feed. And other bizarre things, even such as the calf can be born missing hair just because we haven't had the influence of thyroid hormones on allowing final development and maturation of that calf. Now, I keep saying calf, and I'm sorry to all you sheep enthusiasts out there. Things we're talking about here, because we, we had limited initially to dairy cows, are equally important for newborn lambs born to iodine-deficient mums. So equally talking about sheep as much as cattle, but we are having a dairy focus here. Now that's just talking about iodine deficiency resulting in, you know, we thought worst case stillborn uh, calves. Worst case again is if the cow is very iodine deficient, she may actually abort the pregnancy just because there's simply not enough support for normal 
organ development and tissue development because there aren't enough of the those very active thyroid hormones present. Now, one thing that you might be thinking, come on, Charlotte, you haven't mentioned the main thing that we see when either iodine-deficient ewes or iodine-deficient cows give birth to their progeny, and that is, of course, if your lambs or calves are born with something called a goiter. Now, that's a massively swollen or enlarged thyroid gland in the lamb or the calf as a result of mum being iodine deficient. Now, it seems a little bit sort of reverse, sort of roundabout way. If mum's been iodine deficient, why on earth has the calf or the lamb been born with this big swollen goiter or this enlarged thyroid gland? Now, that's because the newborn's thyroid gland, while it was still inside mum's tum, has been desperately trying to compensate for the fact that mum hasn't been giving the unborn animal enough iodine through the placenta. So what it's done is it's done some compensatory development of its thyroid gland to try and become more efficient at taking those itty-bitty amounts of iodine and still trying to churn out enough thyroid hormones. So With goiters, we can define these by talking about the thyroid gland of the newborn animal, perhaps in a post-mortem or autopsy situation, being expressed as a percentage of the live weight of that uh, newly born animal. So some of you, for example, I know a lot of very proactive sheep farmers when they're post-mortem and newly born animals that have died, sadly, is to actually weigh the thyroid gland and express it as a ratio of the weight of the thyroid gland relative to the live weight of that newborn lamb. So very briefly, that sums up what we might expect to see in terms of the cow and her calf if the cow has been deficient in iodine. Outside of the very obvious signs of stillbirths and abortions, worst case, and the calf or the lamb being very slow to get up and have a feed and metabolic rate being quite low, otherwise if we look at mum, the cow or the ewe standing in the paddock, we're not going to see a lot of other clinical signs in the adult cow or the adult ewe because most of the signs that we see to do with the newborn calf or lamb, so it might be goiters and those other factors, you know, stillbirths um, and those sorts of things. And just because we have been interchangeably talking about calves and newborn lambs, we might add here that goiters, clinical enlarged thyroid glands, less likely to be seen in newborn calves than they are in newborn lambs. And here in New Zealand, where a lot of ewes, particularly in the South Island and Central North Island areas, will spend winter on brassicas. And brassicas, uh, such as Swedes or kale, not only contain low levels of iodine as a feed, they also contain goitrogens, or things that bind up the availability of iodine, and we're going to come back to that point. But it does seem that when we uh, spend the winter as ewes and cows on crop, that goiters and newborn animals are much more likely to be seen in ewes on brassica crops than in cows on brassica crops. But again, some of you listening will no doubt have seen goiters in calves born to dairy cows, particularly in dairy heifers. You probably find more often that you actually will see a goiter in calves born to iodine-deficient cows on brassica crops. Back to iodine and the reproductive performance of dairy cows, because that's what today's topic is supposed to be, so we'll leave the goiter and the other bits and pieces behind. 
Let's first look at what the science tells us about the relationship between iodine and onset of ovulation after calving and also the expression of heat or or signs of estrus to accompany those ovulations. Well, back in the days, and we're talking really old days even by my standards, those of you that know I'm a little bit older in life now, that even before I was born, thank you, work done in the 1960s showed that surgical removal of the thyroid gland of cows, poor old cows, but anyway, that was what they did back in the 50s and 60s, that shut down all physical signs of estrus. So, yeah, that's a bit grim for those poor experimental cows all those decades ago, but in that work, at least that did show that thyroid hormones clearly have something to do with cows showing estrus. It seems that iodine has a lot to do with all aspects of the reproductive tract, in cows, in other words, the uterus and ovaries. We'll talk about this shortly. But it also appears that low iodine starts to mess with what we call the HPO axis. Hang on for this. That's otherwise known as the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, HPO axis. Don't panic and switch off. I'm not going to go any more into that. But in a, in a nutshell, and, and at a gumboot level, all that this HPO axis thing does is it's kind of like the, the messaging system that happens between the brain and the ovary. So it's kind of like, oh, let's keep it simple. Let's say the brain sends the ovary a text message and says, time to get your life together, uh, ovaries. Let's start to think about developing a follicle and then ultimately releasing an egg into the fallopian tubes where it flows on down into uh, the uterus and meets the sperm. So the HPO axis is simply the messaging that goes from the brain because the hypothalamus and the pituitary are in the brain. So it's just text messaging between the brain and the ovary, but also it completes the cycle back again that the ovary sends text messages back to the brain. So just think of it as a text messaging in this uh, HPO axis makes sure that the ovary starts to kick into action after calving and then ultimately to, to do things like develop the follicle and away we go. So if we have low concentrations of iodine and therefore low levels of thyroid hormones, it seems that this hormonal text messaging, if you'd like, from the brain to the ovary goes a little bit haywire. And what happens is the ovary doesn't get the right messaging and not telling it to start not only growing follicles and for those follicles then to get really big and then to pop and to release a healthy egg from inside the ovary into the fallopian tubes in the uterus. So all of that starts to come unstuck, should we say. So an iodine deficiency might, worst case, show up as more anestrous cows, more non-cycling cows after calving, simply because the text messaging, if you like, between the brain and the ovary hasn't been happening as it should have. So the ovary's just laying there asleep, hasn't started to develop any follicles, or if the follicles are there, they don't actually get to the mature stage and pop and let an egg go into the reproductive tract. So that's a worst case. If the levels aren't quite as low, what we might start to see is more irregular heats. So the cow is starting to to ovulate, but that we don't necessarily conform to the regular one cycle every 18 to 24 days or an average of 21 days for cows. So something's not quite right there. With the messaging between the brain and the ovary a bit messed up in the absence of uh, sufficient levels of thyroid hormones, again, all due to do with an iodine deficiency, sometimes we also see 
messed up expression of estrus or showing heat signs. So the cow might be regularly ovulating every 18 to 24 days, but no matter how much we look at these cows, no matter how much we rely on heat mount detectors and tail painting, or even leaning into some of the aspects uh, around automated heat monitoring through cow wearables that rely on increased walking activity by cows, those expression of heat uh, or estrual signs doesn't happen. So we end up with more silent heats. So we no longer see cows standing to be ridden uh, or other secondary signs of heat like dripping estral mucus and cows bellowing and holding their milk and stomping around doing a lot of walking with the sexually active group cows and the herd. All of a sudden it literally goes silent. We've got ovulations with silence, stony cold silence, no signs of heat. So that's not very helpful when we're looking at artificial insemination or artificial breeding, where we need to detect cows and put them up for artificial insemination. Not very helpful at all. And finally, lower levels of iodine and therefore less thyroid hormones coursing through the veins of the cows can also reduce conception rates. So every time we put a cow up, that cow may be less likely to conceive and showing up, I suppose, depending on how you analyse these, is more services per conception. So in other words, more straws needed every 18 to 24 days before the cow holds and gets in calf. But remembering the most important thing that messes with cows not cycling, cows not showing heats, cows not conceiving, is negative energy balance. That's cows losing too much condition from calving to mating. So iodine is just a tiny, tiny proportion of it. So don't think that fixing iodine problems is going to absolutely fix this if your cows are too thin at calving, if your cows lose way too much condition from calving to mating. So just putting that wee disclaimer in for the second time. But iodine is not a silver bullet to fix everything. But we have to acknowledge just in the single podcast that iodine does have impacts on all aspects of the cow reproductive cycle. And before we leave the symptoms behind around potential iodine deficiency and reproductive success of your cows, if you are running bulls, you've got no artificial insemination happening, beef, cattle for example, we need to remember that iodine has an impact on the fertility of bulls as well. So often forgotten about, uh, particularly in the dairy situation where bulls just come in as tail up, clean up behind uh, artificial insemination that, yep, bull fertility can be impacted by iodine, so we need to keep an eye on that as well. We are a New Zealand podcast, unashamedly, and what's the risk for iodine deficiency in New Zealand dairy cattle? Well, the challenge when we're trying to diagnose this, just looking at the cows, is that It's a difficult one to diagnose from the cow directly based on uh, iodine or thyroid hormones in cows. Now again, showing my age back in the day, I remember signing off on a lot of reports where we'd blood tested cows and and we'd interpret the blood tests and, and send you guys a report. And you may remember back in the day, we would look at levels of thyroxine, which is T4 in the blood of your cows. Now, the difficulty with this, and I feel a bit sheepish now, pardon the pun or cowish, uh, that, gosh, I signed off a lot of those reports. And we now better understand how we interpret thyroxine or T4 in the blood. And we've got a much better understanding nowadays that the T4 levels in blood or thyroxine levels, to be honest, they bounce around all over the place. They are influenced by a lot of factors other than just iodine uptake um, or iodine levels in the diet. So things just like the weather, 
hot, cold, rainy, sunny, seasonality changes from summer to winter, the stage of lactation of cows, just to name a few things, um, selenium status of the cow concurrently as well, all of these things will influence thyroxine levels at a single point in time. And as you know, many of these things obviously aren't directly linked to dietary iodine intake. So to be honest, here in New Zealand, the Animal Health Labs no longer will stand behind levels of thyroxine as as, um, very strongly correlated with the iodine status of cows. So currently, here in 2023, I don't know how long these podcasts are going to kick around over the years, but currently, instead of T4 or thyroxine, we test levels of serum iodine to look to see if cows have got enough iodine in the diet. Now, these are quite expensive to do, so quite often the labs will pool or will mix together the serum of perhaps 10 cows and just do the single value for you. But even then, sometimes you'll get um, low iodine in the serum of cows who have got otherwise really good reproductive success. So the strengths and weaknesses around this, you can discuss this with your very own vet and or qualified ruminant nutritionist, of course, to better define what iodine is doing in your herd and interpret these blood samples and perhaps look at levels in the serum of cows in conjunction with looking with iodine levels in the feeds of your cows and feed testing labs such as Hill Laboratories here in New Zealand will offer iodine testing of feeds. But when we look at pastures, unashamedly again, majority of New Zealand dairy herds particularly through mating, are consuming a very high proportion of the diet as pasture. And this is where the trick comes, is that levels of iodine in the pasture are very variable around New Zealand for a whole range of uh, reasons, not only the types of forages that cows are consuming, and we'll talk a little bit more about this shortly, but also because as a, a, a very small country here in New Zealand, we've got a relatively small land mass relative to our very long coastline. So we're all very close to the sea on average. And because of that, we get a lot of salt spray coming off, off from the sea, coming on shore, and certainly within you know 50 k's or so of the coast, which does include a high proportion of New Zealand, that the salt spray brings in with it, yep, you guessed it, iodine. To be fair, only tiny, tiny amounts, but nonetheless, kilos or tens of kilos of salt spray landing on pasture may distribute grams of, of iodine. Not huge amounts, but will contribute to some of the variability that we will see in levels of pasture iodine uh, around New Zealand, particularly in these coastal areas. And then when we overlay just where you are in New Zealand on other things such as the types of forages on farm, even your grazing management impacts on iodine intake by cows. For example, if you overwinter your dry pregnant dairy cows on just on grass and silage fed out on the ground, if cows consume a lot of mud, ironically that increases iodine intake um, from eating iodine that's present in the soil. So there is no single one recommendation around iodine requirements for cows in New Zealand for all of these reasons. That's just simply based on the iodine levels that your cows are consuming in your pastures, uh, soil contamination and that. Though we've said feed testing is very useful and you won't know what your iodine intake is going to be until you do do some feed testing, there's one little trick here with interpreting feed tests if you do indeed sample for iodine in your pastures and your silages and your brassicas and your summer crops, whatever. And that's because some of our feeds that cows consume contain what we very briefly mentioned before, compounds called goitrogens. Now these are compounds that simply mess with 
the thyroid uh, functionality, so that's that gland at the top of the neck, and messes with the ability of that thyroid gland to take up iodine to synthesize thyroid hormones and to metabolize things in the thyroid gland. So you can have ample iodine in the diet, but if we have the goitrogens going into the cow at the same time, then the ability of the thyroid to metabolize and actually churn out sufficient levels of thyroid hormones may be impacted, even though there's enough apparent levels of iodine going into the diet. Now, where do we find goitrogens? Well, they're not found in all feeds. And again, here in New Zealand, probably the two forage types we're most likely to encounter goitrogens firstly are forage brassicas. So that includes the key species that are commonly farmed in New Zealand, which would be bulb turnips, leafy turnips, Palaton raffino brassica, kale, swedes and forage rapes. And even between those different species of brassicas, there are differences in the types of goitrogens and the level of goitrogens. But to remember one point, yeah, brassicas can potentially impact on the uptake of iodine and the churning out of these metabolically active thyroid hormones. Now, the other forage is, in fact, White clovers, yeah. So white clovers are a companion species to grasses in New Zealand pastures, mainly ryegrasses, but also uh, coxfoot and tall fescues. And the white clovers can, they that is quite variable between cultivars, but uh, that can actually cause a reduced uptake of iodine when there's a lot of white clovers in the diet. The main type of goitrogen, because there are subtypes are called thiocyanate-type goitrogens. And how these compounds work, or these goitrogenic compounds work, is to uh, mess with the ability of the thyroid to take up iodine. And of course, therefore, that messes with the ability of the thyroid hormones to be pushed out and to be uh, useful to the animal. Now, in some types of brassicas, we get another subset of goitrogens called thiouracils that also mess with thyroid function through um, not allowing the thyroid hormone to convert T3 to T4. Getting complicated, let's get out of that rabbit hole real fast, but just saying that that brassicas and also white clovers can uh, mess through quartrogenic effects on the metabolism of thyroid hormones. Now, the other two main types of forages here in New Zealand, we see a little bit of forage sorghum growing in the warmer parts of New Zealand, And interestingly, forage sorghum can also mess with iodine status. And how forage sorghum can potentially mess with the iodine status of cows is the presence of hydrocyanic acid uh, found in varying levels in forage sorghums. Therefore, we get thiocyanate formation when cows graze uh, sorghum. Might only be tiny amounts, but if, for example, dry non-lactating autumn calving cows were fed a lot of sorghum through the summer when they're dry, that may also creates some issues of reduced thyroid uh, hormone levels. And one last comment on forages that accumulate nitrate, which of course is a lot of our forages that could be maize silage, it's corn silage, um, could be, oh gosh, uh, annual and Italian ryegrasses. Yeah, but at the end of the day, a lot of forages, even chicory can accumulate nitrate. Interestingly, high levels of nitrate can also mess with iodine and therefore thyroid function. So there's some of the risk factors around these goitrogen things 
that even in the presence of adequate iodine mean that the levels of thyroid hormones might not be cruising around in the blood of the cows and therefore that's mes- messing with that text messaging between the brain and the ovary to uh, to get the repro thing happening. Just one more thing before we, we finish up on, on these dietary iodine topics around how much iodine you have in the diet, number one, and whether goitrogens may or not, not be present to reduce the efficiency of that iodine being used to support thyroid function. There's just one more topic here with lactating dairy cows and iodine, and that, of course, because some of you are probably already thinking this, Charlotte, what about iodized teeth sprays? Yep. That's the teat sprays that contain iodine, mostly applied post-milking, you know, not, not pre, unless the pathogen load of strep uterus or something's very high. But if you are applying iodized teat sprays, then bizarrely your cow is actually very clever at absorbing iodine across the skin of her teats and her udder. So every time you teat spray with an iodized teat spray, you are actually improving iodine status of your cows no matter what is in the diet so that's kind of cool so if we said that you had two dairy farms side by side one is using iodized teat sprays and one is using a non-iodized teat spray maybe with chlorhexidine or something as the active ingredient then arguably the chlorhexidine based teat spray herd the iodine status may not be as good as the the one we're using iodized teat sprays That's an aside, we're supposed to be a nutrition-based podcast, but just as as a bit of an aside there. But of course, if in doubt, talk about this with your vet and or a qualified ruminant nutritionist just to to better understand the status of your herd uh, for iodine based on the level of iodine in in the different feeds in the diet, whether you have potential goitrogens blocking blocking the activity of the iodine and whether you're using an iodized teat spray. And of course, for many of you listening, you might say, we don't want to do bloods, we don't want to do feed testing. And of course, that's the other approach. And I know I've worked with people over the years that we just take the let's keep it simple approach to iodine requirements of your cows, which is simply, of course, just to add a a low level supplementary amount of iodine into the diet, perhaps part of your multi-mineral mix going into the shed or maybe into your stock water. In other words, if in doubt, just put iodine in. Now this is the the simple approach and the only comment I'd make about just simply heaping iodine in without taking any account for the amounts of levels in the feed or whether there's goitrogens or whatever is that in some parts of the world and we we have a really strong following with the Room and Room podcast internationally that we're really stoked about we're just conscious that there are in some countries there are upper limits to permissible levels of iodine in the diet of cows because uh, of possible issues about getting too much iodine into the milk that obviously is then destined for human consumption. So very important take home here, before blindly just chucking in a heap of iodine into the diet of your cows, just check with the dairy company that you supply, so hopefully they've got a local company rep on the ground in your area, about whether there's any upper limits about how much iodine we can put into the diet. At this point in time, my understanding is here in New Zealand we do not have this issue, but I'm very conscious in Northern Hemisphere countries that there are some of you that will not be able to just simply add a lot of iodine into the diet. So labouring that point, uh, if you're a New Zealand listener, at this point in time, 2023, it is my understanding that there is not an upper limit on dietary iodine into cows. Happy to be corrected and then re-edit this and correct it, but that's my understanding at this time. 
Right, so we're completing the circle back back in the days that I've already fessed up. It was in the 1990s when I was a graduate vet, very green, and I was taking on face value uh, that there was truth to the fact that adding iodine into the diet of cows, heading into mating and through mating to improve the heat expression of ovulating cows, well, happy to say that that wasn't an urban myth and legend and also for many of you here in New Zealand particularly that do add extra iodine to improve heat expression, that would seem that there is some science to back that up as a recommendation. And for some farms at least, uh, many of you that are listening will have noticed that the heat, the strength of heat expression or estrual expression does seem to improve. But remembering, are you going to get a benefit or not? It depends for all of the reasons we've explained. Depends on what iodines are in the feed. Depends on whether there's any gortrogens present and a whole lot of other factors and also and we haven't gone into this in detail and perhaps we'll do a selenium podcast in the in the near future but there is an interaction between selenium and iodine and those thyroid hormones getting them active and going there needs to be enough selenium present so let's say if you did have a requirement for iodine if you're severely uh, selenium deficient there may be some issues there so that the two of them do interact but look Key mention here is, of course, you want to talk to your very own local vet who knows you and your herd best, and preferably if there's one available, you can also bounce this off a qualified ruminant nutritionist who knows about this stuff and start to have a a bit of a more informed discussion around iodine and reproduction. But remembering that condition score at calving and negative energy balance, in other words, the amount of condition they lose between calving and mating, are by far the more important influences of a successful reproductive outcomes. So don't just think iodine's going to fix it as a silver bullet. Nope. I hope you've enjoyed this topic all about iodine for your lactating dairy cows as they head towards mating. Really sincerely hope there's been something there, even just to validate the, the, the recommendation that perhaps someone's made for you or that you've always done every year to pop a little bit of extra iodine into the system to make sure cows show strong heats. Whatever you've got from it, I hope it's been of use. As I mentioned before, if this reproductive topic is of use to you, we can really drill down into some separate topics around reproductive performance and how it's impacted by nutrition. So just drop us a a message or a direct message uh, through Messenger to myself, Charlotte Westwood, or a post in the room and room and let us know if you want that. Anyway, that's us. Keep up the good work out and about, whatever you've been doing and multitasking while you've been listening in, driving, dropping kids off or tractor work or milking or hosing down or drafting out cows for AI, whatever you've been up to. been great that you've been able to join us. I really appreciate you listening in. My name's Charlotte Westwood. Uh, Hope that you enjoy your day out and about on farm. Cheers. Cheers.